This is a HeadGum Podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I don't know the truth. Hello and welcome to Factually. I'm Adam Conover. Thank you for joining me once again as I talk to an amazing expert about all the things that they know that I don't know, that you probably don't know. Both of our minds are going to get blown together. We're going to have a fantastic time. Now, before we get started, I want to make a big announcement. I am going on tour this summer. I have a brand new hour of stand-up. No one has seen it before. I'm taking it all across the country to the following cities. We got Phoenix. We got Boston. We got Washington, D.C. slash Arlington, Virginia. We got Nashville, Tennessee. We got Spokane, Washington, Tacoma, Washington, and the Bell House in New York City to round it out. If you live in or near any of those places, head to adamconover.net slash tour dates to pick up tickets to these shows. And here's a special guarantee. If you come to the show, I will take a selfie with you afterwards, should you want to. Only at your request, but I will happily do it with every single person who attends one of these shows. Again, brand new hour of stand-up. So excited for you to see it. AdamConover.net slash tour dates for tickets. And of course... Please don't stop watching The G Word on Netflix. I have loved hearing everyone's responses, seeing them on social media. Uh, Dare I say it, the show seems to be resonating with people and nothing could be more important to me. So I thank you so much for watching. Please keep checking it out if you haven't already and let me know what you think on social media or by emailing factually at adamconover.net, which is my special address and I always love hearing from you. But enough promo, let's get to this week's show because we have such a fun one for you this week. This week, we are talking about robots. You know robots, you love robots. The square guys, they go beep, beep, boop, boop. I cannot get enough of them. But haven't you ever wondered where robots came from? Like, we were imagining robots long before we could actually create them. And now we are making robots that literally resemble the science fiction robots that we previously used to imagine. So where the hell does this concept originate and what does it have to say about humanity that we have this constant companion in our fantasy lives? Well, the concept of the robot dates back to the Jewish tradition of the golem. This is a being conjured from inanimate clay whose 
created in order to protect medieval Jewish ghettos and occasionally run some errands. A golem isn't quite human, but it can do human things. And, you know, does it sometimes get out of pocket and need to be put down? Yes, of course, like all artificial humans do. But, you know, if something sounds familiar about this story, well, it's because the creation of the golem out of clay mimics the creation of humanity from dust in the Abrahamaic religious tradition. So isn't that fascinating? When we talk about a robot, we're almost talking about an artificial human created in our image. And when we tell that story, we are recapitulating the origin myth of the Abrahamic religions, that God created humanity in his image. And there's just as much depth with the story of Frankenstein, the 19th century story written by Mary Shelley of a man who used science rather than Jewish magic to reanimate a dead body. And the result of that story was chaos. Everyone rejects the super strong, super ugly, super emo brute who vows revenge on the misguided dork who created him. Now, the lesson from both of these stories is the same. Don't breathe life into a person. You are not God. It goes wrong. Now, the first time the word robot actually appears was when it was coined by the Czech playwright Karel Čapek in his 1920 play Rossum's Universal Robots. This play was about scientists, mass-producing workers who didn't have a soul or feelings. And eventually, of course, the robots decided to take over. And pieces of this story have been reappropriated and reused in science fiction ever since. Data from Star Trek is a robot in search of his human soul. The robots from the Matrix subjugate all of humanity. So this meta story, the story of humans who create intelligent artificial life in our image, has permeated our culture, and it has influenced the real-world development of real-world robots, too. The great science fiction author Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics, which are all about making sure robots don't injure or disobey human beings, have actually guided the making of robots today. And companies from Honda to Boston Dynamics have tried to make science fiction a reality and build robots that actually resemble and move and work like humans. This story also influences our real-life anxieties about robots. I mean, hell, Andrew Yang ran an entire presidential campaign off of the premise that robots would someday replace us. But here's the thought. What if this entire story of what robots are and what they might be in the future is off? What if there is another way to think about our interactions with the non-human entities we create? What if there's a story that can provide us a more realistic, less apocalyptic, more helpful view of what these things could be? Well, as our expert today compellingly argues, there is a way to think about robots that makes a lot more sense. Instead of comparing them to ourselves, they're a lot more analogous to a much more familiar human companion, animals. If you start to think about robots as compared to our relationship with animals, you might be able to get a much more accurate and thorough understanding of what they are, what they might be, their promise, and their potential perils. So, to elaborate on this fascinating idea and to discuss how animals can help us make sense of robots, our guest today is Kate Darling. She's a research specialist at MIT's Media Lab and the author of The New Breed, What Our History with Animals Reveals About Our Future with Robots. Please welcome Kate Darling. Kate Darling, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So you are a robot ethicist. What does this mean? 
Yes, some people call me that. I know it sounds very science fiction-y, but um, it's basically just thinking through kind of the near-term effects of robotic technology from a social, legal, ethical perspective. Um, I think there are actually quite a few very interesting questions that are coming up in the near future around integrating these machines that can sense, think, make autonomous decisions and learn. So that's, that's my job. And wait, you said some people call you that. What do you call yourself? Uh, usually I just call myself a researcher. It's hard. I, I, <laughs> I reside at the intersection of disciplines. I originally went to law school, but I'm not a lawyer and I'm not technically an ethicist. Um, so I, I, I exist in the space in between. So, uh, look, I'm so excited to talk to you because I love robots, as does everybody. Like, uh, you just sort of grow up. I just grew up with a love of robots. I don't know. You see a robot, you get happy. It's like same same with uh, they're in the same bucket as like chimpanzees. There's other things that, you know, you just you like to think about them. You like to look at them. You know what I mean? You like, hey, a movie with a robot in it. I'm there. Right. But that is a science fiction robot, obviously. How do you define the kind of robots that you're talking about? Let's make sure we're all talking about the same thing, first of all. Well, we're never all talking about the same thing because there's no universal definition of robot. And oh, yeah, it's well, I mean, there's no universal definition of anything, really, if we want to get super philosophical about it. But I think robot is a particularly problematic one because we're so influenced by science fiction, like you said, that if you do a Google image search for robot, you get a bunch of humanoid robots with like a torso and two arms and legs and a head and they usually Mm -hmm. have eyes. That's not necessarily how a roboticist would define a robot, but it's what we Mm. all imagine in our heads when we think robot. And that's kind of, um, that's been a fascination of mine for a while that we have this image of robots that's very humanoid, but that a robot can be something that looks very different or does very different things or has a different type of intelligence. So... But one of the interesting things about robots, and and uh, forgive me if we're going off course right at the beginning here, but I find this really interesting that that robot originated as a science fictional concept. Um, well, it's what probably uh, over a century old, right? Like a, I would guess the beginning of the of the early twentieth century. It came out of like mytho- like Jewish mythology about the golem, right, um, and things like that, and and you know it was a it was a fictional concept, but. Almost more than any other science fictional concept, it has influenced technology in the real world. Like we had what probably like 40 years of just like science fiction authors going, I think this is what a robot will be. And then people started trying to invent them, basically. And the, and the weird thing that you say about, well, when you look up Google image search for a robot, you see them with with heads and arms and legs. And that's not really what they are, except that. There are people and companies who are constantly trying to create robots like that, like the um, Sony. I forget the name of Sony's, but Sony had a famous one for many years that they would like trot out at trade shows and stuff like that. Oh, you Um, mean the Honda one, the Asimo one? Thank you. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Honda Asimo. Right. Um, And like, you know, I look at those and go, okay, this is clearly a little more science fictional than reality. But you have people who are. Constantly, I, I don't know half half the shit that Elon Musk says about robots. He just literally read in a science fiction novel the other day. So um, <laughs> it's uh, that that interplay is really funny to me. I mean, because that's not true of like cars or other, you know, like the internet that we have was not invented by science. It was not in science fiction. It, it's different from the science fiction that we had. But robots were often trying to create the fictional reality in a way. It seems like totally. I I think. Yeah, and, and you hit the nail on the head. Like, it, we, we have all these technologies like cryptocurrency where people can't really picture in their minds what that is. But 
for robot, we have this very specific idea of what it is and should be. And it comes from science fiction or it comes even, I mean, we've always been fascinated with recreating ourselves. If you go back to the ancient Greeks and their automata that they had, I mean, it's, it's incredible how throughout history, we've tried to like recreate a human. And Mm -hmm. it's, I, I think that that is still part of what, like you said, robotics companies are doing today. A lot of um, people in robotics and in artificial intelligence are trying to recreate a human body or human ability, human skill. And while I totally understand that impulse and I understand why we're fascinated by it, I, I also think it's a little bit boring to recreate mm. something that we already have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and we have the ability to create different things and things that could actually supplement us. Why are we so focused on recreating a human? That is a really good question. Why is that our fascination? I mean, that's, it's our fascination in our lives to create, we want to procreate, right? We want to create more life, or at least many people do. Um, You know, a lot of people have a goal in life of creating a tiny new human and raising it up. And so maybe there's some sort of, broad human psychic need to create yeah reproductions of ourselves that walk around but it's true what is the what is the utility of that type of robot like probably not that high because we can already do all those things like you can you don't need a a robot to wash your car because you could pay a human to wash your car right or and and like even if you had a a car washing robot why would it look like a human i think sometimes <laughs> right. I, like you could make a much more efficient a car wash is basically <laughs> a robot that washes your car and it's much cheaper and more efficient to build than a humanoid robot that goes around with a sponge and a hose you know yeah but a lot of people who make the humanoid robots are still making the argument, oh, well, the robots need to look like humans because we have a world that's built for humans. We have stairs and we have, you know, door handles and things that the robots need to be able to um, operate. And even that, I think, is a little bit short-sighted. When you really think outside the box, you could think about our infrastructure and how it's created for able-bodied humans and not for wheelchairs or strollers or assistive devices. And suddenly you've solved two problems because Mm -hmm. you can create a world or an infrastructure that can accommodate a wheeled robot, which is much easier to create than, you know, a two-legged thing that walks around. And you have a more accessible world for people. Yeah, these are incredible points. Well, I want to know when you are, apart from science fictional robots, when you're talking about what are the what are the ethical problems or dilemmas of real robots, of the robots we actually have, what kind of robots are you talking about? Or the kind of robots we intend to create in the very near future? So for me, a robot is a physical machine that can sense its environment and make some sort of autonomous decision based on what it's sensing and then act on its environment again. And mm. so anything from autonomous weapon systems, I think the ethical issues there are pretty obvious. Right. Autonomous vehicles, uh, robots in the home that might have microphones and cameras that are recording everything that you do in the intimacy <laughs> right. of your own home. Well, is um, that science fiction? No, that already exists. Okay. All right. We're already, <laughs> we're already in the worrisome future. Okay. Got it. <laughs> yes. So, so I think lots of, lots of issues and I, it, it's always struck me so interesting that um, we know there are issues and then, but people are freaking out about them in a way that I think is, um, also a little bit short-sighted because people are like, well, this is totally new. This is, we're in this new science fiction world. Mm. 
We have these robots that can make decisions that no one could anticipate, not even their creators. What are we going to do about responsibility for harm? What are we going to do about, you know, people be, be developing emotional connections to these machines? And I think one of the things that we forget is that we do have a long history of engaging with entities that can sense and think and make autonomous decisions and learn. They're called animals. And ah. we have <laughs> integrated them into the workforce. We have created weapons out of animals. We have, you know, sent mm. animals on spy missions, changed our communication send with them each to space. other. Totally, yeah. Anything that we don't want actual humans uh, to do, <laughs> we, we send animals and that's also the great use case for robots, even better use case for robots because you're not killing them. Wow, I never thought of that connection and that's absolutely right. Like if you look at the uh, long history of the domestication of the horse, which, you know, now the, the horse has finally been freed from, at least in the United States, from the burden of being a like mechanical animal that we force to do our labor. Right. Horses generally are very rarely used for that, whereas they used to just be system of transportation, uh, like literally horsepower. We would power things using horses. <laughs> That's why we have the phrase. Um, and we just had like well, millions and millions of horses living in misery. Um, but we we created that animal over the process of domestication, training them, you know, breeding them, et cetera, et cetera, you know, over the course of thousands and thousands of years. And like, yeah, now that you mentioned it, hold on a second, that is completely analogous to like trying to create a robot to to do certain things that we don't want to do. Right. Is that, the, Am I right? Yeah. And I've, I've always been so struck by how perfect the analogy is. I mean, obviously it breaks down in some cases. Some robots aren't exactly like animals, but I think that getting people away from this human comparison and towards thinking about how we've had these other types of skill that we've drawn on in the past, I think mm -hmm. it really kind of gets people away from this kind of technological determinism that the robots are coming to take our jobs and that the robots yeah. are coming to replace our relationships and, and that type of thing. and gets us thinking, even in the design process, more creatively about how we can actually harness the skill and the strength of robotics and artificial intelligence um, to be partners in what we're trying to achieve instead of just trying to, again, recreate what we already have. And so yeah. looking at the diversity in the animal world and all the different skill sets and sensory abilities that animals have that we've been able to make use of, I think is a really great starting point for thinking about what possibilities we have in robotics. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay. So with it helps ground our conversation about it because instead of saying, oh, wait, what if we invent a robot that people love the robot so much they stop taking care of each other and they only want to make out and kiss the robot because they love the robot so much, like that sort of like horror story, apocalyptic story. Well, we already have these other non-human things that we love. They're called pets. And we understand that pets are like complementary to the rest of human life. We're not like we, I love my dog. My dog loves me, but not in the same way. I love my girlfriend. <laughs> right? Totally. Like, yeah. Your like dog it, doesn't replace your girlfriend. Yeah. And, and but, no one freaks out. Like if you don't have a girlfriend and you get a dog, no one's going to be like, oh, you're never going to get a girlfriend now. Right. But the, but the dog also fulfills a certain set of human needs. Like when I, when I, I've thought a lot about when I'm staring into my dog's eyes and I'm petting her little head and I'm going like, why do I do this? 
I do it because it fulfills a human need in me to care for another living thing. Like it makes me feel good to simply do it. And there's like, you know, I don't know. I believe there's research on, you know, elderly folks when they when they have a pet or a plant to take care of, it like improves their overall well-being because that have sort of responsibility is like good for you in like a small way and in, in, in little pet sized doses. Like it's it does it does. It gives me something that I want, but it doesn't like replace a baby. You know what I mean? But it gives yes. me a little taste of it, maybe in a way that's enriching to my life. And so maybe a robot could do the same thing. Is that the idea or no? It is the idea. And 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 it's a little bit freaky, but a lot of research in human-robot interaction is showing that robots can um, have a similar kind of emotional role in people's lives. Mm. And uh, where, okay, so there's this, baby harp seal robot called the Paro. And they use this in nursing homes and with dementia patients. And so you were saying like the old people, when they get a pet or a dog or something to take care of, it actually improves their lives. Okay, so they're giving them these robots and the mm. robot is an animal therapy replacement. It makes these little sounds, it responds to your touch, and it really gives people the sense of kind of nurturing something. And it's a little bit freaky, like I said, because it's not a living thing. So are we, you know, tricking these people? Um, and yet it has really, really good effects. Uh, it's it's really good for people's health and well-being. And they've been able to use it as an effective alternative to giving people medication to calm them down. There are a lot of contexts where we can't use live animals. So even mm. though it's kind of controversial, I think that it's really interesting to see kind of the net benefit of using a robot and also really interesting that we will respond to the robot in the same way that we respond to a therapy dog, um, wow. even though we know that it's not real. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I could easily imagine myself having the same reaction if there was a robot that behaved like even 50% as complexly as my dog. Right. Uh, you know, that looked at me, that wanted me to do a thing that made a little sound like I would just start treating it that way. You know, um, I, I believe that about myself. But, yeah, I don't I don't. Th it's funny that you would describe that 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 baby harp seal robot as controversial. It doesn't sound like it would be bad to me, especially like, yeah, if someone is very elderly, has, you know, really struggling with dementia, maybe they can't actually care for a regular animal, but you still want to give them that experience. How is that different from, you know, a child playing with a baby doll, right? And having the experience of playing with a baby doll, except which is something that, that children have been doing since literally prehistory. Um, except that in this case, it's like a little bit more complex. It gives a little bit more feedback. It, it, it does its job a little bit better than an inert baby doll, right? Yeah, it's no longer just solely in the realm of imagination. It's actually like giving you these biological cues as Sherry yeah. Turkle, who's one of the critics of this, um, describes it. But I do, you know, I, I think to, to some extent, um, people are right to freak out about this because okay. I think one of one of the things they worry about is that we're just creating a society where we give people robots instead of human care. Uh -huh. And and that's, I mean, I think that's absolutely correct because the robots can't replace human care. Like in this case, they can be a, a sufficient animal therapy replacement, but they're not going to replace, you know, a person. Um, mm -hmm. But that seems like a broader societal issue. And I think with robots, we tend to focus a lot on either blaming them for societal problems or trying to fix societal problems by using robots, both of which I think is the wrong way to think about robots. Yes. Oh, I agree with you entirely. I mean, the 
My criticism of the robots are coming for our jobs, automation coming for our jobs argument, which we've talked about on the show before um, in at least one or two episodes that you can go find. Um, but is that there's, you know, it, it lays all the blame with the technological. The robots are going to become so good that we're not going to be able to do jobs anymore. And I'm looking at it from a labor perspective, thinking, hold on a second. There's no way that the cost of a robot is ever going to fall below the cost of abusing and underpaying a human being to do a job. <laughs> you know, like robot taxis are, I don't think, ever going to take over for a driver who you can pay less than minimum wage because the robot is probably going to cost more. Like, you know, for Uber to have to take care of like a million dollar robot car and make sure nothing bad happens to it is a lot more work for Uber than Uber saying, hey, you you bring your own Honda Fit and we'll pay you five dollars an hour. Right. Um, and so now there are certainly cases in which like automation can replace things that humans are doing. But in that case, the problem is what is the human who is setting up the job doing? You know, like what is the what is the human infrastructure of capitalism of the corporate machine doing? Now, it's not the robot. It's like what are humans doing to each other is the fundamental question that like we need to focus on. And so as a result, I always find the sort of like you know, super intelligence, robots coming for our jobs. We all need to like, I, I you know, I, I have no strong opinion on UBI, right? There's, that's a whole thing, but that's often pre presented as we have to do this because of the robots. And I'm like, this no, is not no, the conversation separate. we need to be having. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to get into UBI. If you, please UBI people, don't start emailing us. We'll do a different episode about UBI. Um, <laughs> as soon as you mention it, like suddenly a thousand nerds zoom up to you and they're like, yes, but what do you think about UBI though? And we're not the different episode, different episode. Um, but but you, do you, does any of that track for you? Oh, totally. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, look, if there's anything the pandemic has taught us is that robots are not waiting in the wings to take everyone's jobs. Otherwise, it would have happened, right? Yeah. There's all these labor shortages and the robots are not swooping in to take jobs. <laughs> right. We don't have the technology. Like you said, it's not cost effective. And, and, and I think for me, the even bigger issue is that I think we kind of... Um, take our system of labor for granted and the ways mm. that we think about labor um, and, you know, companies trying to automate tasks or even put the humans in positions in an assembly line or in a, on a factory floor where they're doing just a rote task that the companies are hoping to eventually automate away. I think that's a really uncreative way to think about human labor. Um, not to mention probably very unethical, like you're basically putting humans in, in these roles that are like very like unhealthy and unfulfilling for anyone. Mm -hmm. And so a more creative view of labor would look at, okay, what are the strengths of people? What are the strengths of machines? And how can we actually rethink the work process to combine those instead of just trying to automate away the pesky humans? Yeah. Um, but it's really hard to change i mean our whole uh, you know political and economic system is set up for this unbridled corporate capitalism that chases short term profit incentives and so there's not a lot of longer term thinking about how we could have a more productive society yeah. uh, and i think that's the issue and 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 like you said we focus so much on the robots are coming to take the jobs and we give the robots so much agency that we forget that these decisions are being made by people yeah. about people and they are choices they are choices we could be doing something different 
Yeah. And as always, I think this is a theme we return to on the show a lot. The technology that we really need to be focusing on isn't like silicon. It's like our societal technology of how did we organize our society? That is some that is somewhere that we can also advance. That's an area that we can't we have not been able to make any advancements there in the last couple of decades. But that is a form of human technology as well. It's just like the social infrastructure, the 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 way we organize our world, you know, um, totally. And it means we all have a say in this. We all have a little bit of power in shaping the future because it's about the political and economic systems that we are all choosing. It's not just the people designing the robots shape the future. Yeah. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit, uh, Ben, that would have been a great note to end on, but we're only 20 minutes into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, what a great big picture ending. So we'll have to work our way around there again for the end of the conversation. Um, I mean, okay. So, so I, I'd love to talk more about the social robotics that you were, that you were talking about all the different dimensions of that. So you talked about the, the baby seal, the Pleo robot um, for just being a companion robot for very elderly folks. Um, and, uh, I'm curious, are there other examples in that world of social robotics that are either happening or close to happening that are interesting to, to talk and think about? Yeah. Well, I've been really fascinated by social robots for ever since I got into robotics because, you know, having these robots that interact with people on a social level and then mm -hmm. seeing both through my own experience, but also through like a lot of research in the space, seeing that people will consistently treat the robots like they're alive, even though they know perfectly well that they're just machines mm -hmm. is so fascinating to me. And the fact that people can develop genuine empathy for robots and genuine emotional connections. Um, let's see, there, you know, the, I think the, the main problem that social robotics has commercially is that people's expectations are too high for what a robot should be able to do. And yeah. so if you try to create like a little humanoid robot that can like talk to people and like fetch things, that's not going to work. It's going to fall over. It's not yeah. going to understand your commands. And people are going to be like, why should I pay, you know, $1,500 for this thing, which is yeah. still like the price point for these robots. Yeah. Um, but something with like a slightly more clever design, something that mimics more of an animal or like a mythical figure that you've never even like seen in real life, uh, you don't have as many expectations for what that robot right. is going to do. And so let's see, one of the ones that was recently announced is Amazon has this new home robot called Astro. Mm -hmm. um, and it's it's kind of interesting because they, they basically took all the functionality of Alexa, but they put it in this like little character on wheels that has a really cute face and can dance and move its body. And I think companies are starting to understand that that is very powerful. Like it doesn't even need to have the functionality of Alexa for people to enjoy a robot that is physically moving around and making cute eyes at them. And what yeah. we've seen is that people who have gotten social robots in their homes, a lot of companies have like had these robots and gone out of business, but the people who got them actually really bonded with them. And so I think that the social use case, almost like, you know, why we have pets. We used to have animals in our homes to guard our grain stores and, and guard our houses. <laughs> but right. we now we have pets just because for many reasons, uh, including what you said about like, we like this, um, the experience of caring for something or interacting with yeah. something. And I think that there's a use case for robotics there as well, where um, it hasn't quite hit the market yet, but I think we're going to see more companion robots. 
Well, and, uh, you know, I'm a big video game player and a whole sort of design pattern in video games is caring for a virtual creature or a virtual character of some kind. You know, there's the Tamagotchi, obviously. Um, there's, you know, Pokemon is entirely, you know, based like a big thing that people like in Pokemon. They add more features every generation. They add more features for where you just play with your Pokemon and feed them treats and you increase your bond with them. And people then go out of their way to take the same Pokemon from cartridge to cartridge, from generation to generation. And, you know, they, I think if you ask those people, they wouldn't think it's alive, but they're there or, you know, that they have any ethical obligation to it or that they're really caring for it in a real sense, but they are doing it as a form of play and they enjoy it, you know? Um, and I've played first time I played one of those games with my girlfriend, Lisa, she was like, Oh, I love this one. Oh, I'm going to feed him. You know, like that's, you have that reaction. And I could easily see that being put onto some kind of robot uh, that, that sounds unquestionable that that'll be a big Christmas hit in some years hence, right. That I can completely imagine what you're talking about. Um, and, uh, now the question is if I would want to have that, if it'll become so successful, people have it in their house for like 10 years or if they, you know, pack it up, you know, by the time it's spring, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. if it's a toy or if it's a toy or if it's like truly an addition to our lives in the same way that a pet is. Oh, totally. And I think that, you know, that that's one of the challenges is making the robot interesting enough that people want to keep engaging with it. And, and again, matching people's science fictional expectations of like all the cool things that a robot can do, which right. robots mostly can't do. So I think it, it's going to take some very clever design tricks and, um, and some tricks to like keep keeping people engaged, uh, which also then runs into some ethical issues because unlike a pet, you know, there's probably a company behind this robot that's trying to keep you engaged. So mm -hmm. uh, it, you run into the, then uh, all sorts of interesting questions, but I do think we're going to get there. Um, I think that even more, so, I mean, what research shows is that even more so than a Tamagotchi or a video game or anything on a screen, physical robots, people will bond to much more easily, more strongly, um, we we love anything in our physical space. We're very physical creatures. Our brains are scanning our environments, trying to separate things into objects and agents. And uh, yeah. yeah, the robots are definitely objects that, that move like agents and trick our brains. And so, you know, people will name their Roombas and people are definitely gonna gonna <laughs> love having a slightly more sophisticated social robot. Well, so let's talk about a, a couple of the ethical issues. Like you, you mentioned, you know, companies will be designing these. And, you know, I, I agree that perhaps they could design them in ways that take advantage of us. You know, there's plenty of, again, in the world of video games, there's plenty of companies that will take advantage of something that people enjoy in a video game and push the mechanics so far it, it can become uh, abusive or addictive. You, they'll, you know, um, that'll suck money out of players' pockets or they'll feel compelled to keep pouring money into it, for instance, because it's giving them a certain sort of reward that they, uh, they can't get enough of. And I think about how... Look, you know, like dogs and cats have taken advantage of us, right? Like dogs, the reason, like the real reason we have dogs is because they were eating our trash, right? They were just like, come to human settlements, eat our trash. And eventually they evolved to 
sort of take advantage of what we find cute, right? Like to sort of resemble human babies in a certain way to such a degree that, you know, we invited them into our homes. And so in a sense, you could look at them as like parasites on human society, right? <laughs> or symbiotes at the very least. They, they, you know, through the process of evolution over thousands of years, they uh, managed to, uh, they managed to sort of take it, take advantage of certain features of what we like and give that to us. Now, if you are uh, giving a designer at a robot company the, the remit of, hey, make humans love this device, make them love it so much, I could see that maybe getting to some some weird places. Does that does that make sense to you as a concern? Yeah, that's that's probably my main concern um, that mm. is just being totally overlooked about social robots because we have a long history of persuasive design and technology from like mm -hmm. the ways that casinos are designed to, you know, shopping malls and like the music. And then of course, you know, online, the internet and the apps, like are all like so, so much effort and money and investment goes into just getting people to stay on the app a few seconds longer. And yeah. so take that and put that in a robot that you now also have like an emotional connection to. And it's fun, like you said, it's like in the video games, like people love to do this. So people are gonna do this. And then what are you using that engagement for is the question. Right. Are you trying to improve the user's life or are you trying to manipulate the user's behavior so that they buy more of a certain product? Um, right. And we've seen this a little bit with pets, like, you know, People have really exploited their entire industries that exploit people's emotional connection to their dogs. I know you said you have a dog, so yes. I, I don't. I, I'm going to tread lightly here, but there's like entire like doggy hotels and spas and dog ice cream and like all these mm -hmm. things that um, people will spend money or even like the medical procedures that people will spend money on for their dogs did not exist uh, before dogs started becoming like really part of the family. And yeah. I think it's getting it's ramped up even more like, and, and, and to what extent is that taking advantage of people's love for their pets? And to what extent is that yep. something that people actually want? Yeah, no, that's a really good point that there's a lot of products that are like, you know, Hey, you should buy the expensive dog food. Cause this one is made with uh, real beef or whatever. It's taking advantage of your human, uh, you, you know, assumptions about, about food, but applying them to, don't you want your dog to be happy? Don't you want your dog to be healthy? And it's like, look, your dog would literally be happy eating like rat carcasses. Your, your <laughs> dog is, dogs are scavengers. They, they eat trash. Um, they're, they don't need fancy food. If you want to give your dog fancy food, more power to you. But yes, you're right. Those companies are taking advantage of our emotional connection to our dogs. And so, yes, if you imagine a robot pet, that is not only creating that emotional bond, but can also communicate that it feels sad and then offer you the chance to purchase something that will make it happy. <laughs> right? Yeah, click exactly. the Click the micropayment and your dog will get a new skin, a new, a new, uh, you know, cosmetic feature. Um, and it will, and it will f seem so happy and joyous and thankful and you'll have enriched your, your fake pet's life or your digital pet's life. Um, that is, uh, I could see that turning into an abusive design pattern. And I like the way that you put it is, is are you creating the technology to enrich people's lives or are you trying to do it to suck money from their po pockets or abuse them? Bringing it back to video games, I always think of the difference between, uh, you know, there are some games that, you know, uh, like Nintendo, right? 
when Nintendo, when you buy a Nintendo game, it might, it might really, it's, they're trying to make you like it. They're designing it in such a way to really keep you hooked, but really they just want you to pay your 40 to $60. And, and then after that you have a good time and best case scenario, they want you to buy a new game next year, right? As opposed to the types of games where, Hey, it's free up front, but we have designed this game to suck progressively more and more money out of your pocket to, uh, you know, instead of just loving the character and enjoying your time in the fictional world, we want you to love the character and we want you to buy outfits for the character. We want you to buy new weapons for the character, et cetera, et cetera. If you're a video game player, you're familiar with these design patterns and you probably feel one of them is is enriching and one of them is kind of predatory. And we could have that same thing going on with our robots is what you're saying. Oh, totally. And we're, we're already seeing kind of the very beginnings of this. So Sony has this robot dog called the Aibo. Um, it originally came out in the 90s, was super popular in Japan and in the US. And like in Japan, even, you know, some of the Aibos that, that still exist from the 90s that have like broken down beyond repair at this point, like families are having funerals for them at, at Buddhist temples. Mm. So it's like people got really made the Aibo part of their family. And there's a new version of the Aibo that is, I mean, cost almost $3,000 just for this robot dog. And additionally, you have to subscribe to a cloud service. Mm. And if you... Um, don't pay the for the cloud service. The dog will like lose all of its memories and some of its abilities and things oh, that you've taught it. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. And 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 you know, you could make the argument, or Sony could make the argument that you know it's expensive to like maintain you know these servers and uh, you know we need to be uh, actually we make the robot cheaper by only charging the people who are actively using it. Mm -hmm. But they also haven't set the price for the cloud service yet. You get the first three years free, and then they're going to figure out how much to charge you. And so mm. there, and then they can make the decision, am I charging based on how much people like this dog, or am I charging based on how much it's going to cost me to run these servers? And yeah. it's really uh, hard to tell what they're going to do. Well, oh God, that is so fascinating. Uh, I We have to take a break. I, I, I love talking to you, but we have to take a really quick break. And then I have a lot more questions. We'll be right back with more Kate Darling. As a Factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. 
I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with a peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Okay, we're back with Kate Darling. Um, we've been talking about the ethical problems with robots and social robots. Um, I do want to ask a uh, prurient question. Uh, sex robots, are these a thing? Are these going to be a thing? Or should we be concerned about them being a thing? Is this, is they, are they a concern that, that you have? It's certainly, that's another human emotion that, you know, we needs to be fulfilled. And I could imagine it being helped out by some sort of robot, you know? Well, now we get to the question again, what's a robot? What's a sex mm-hmm. robot? Because if you go to a sex shop right now, you'll find plenty of like, you find smart vibrators and like all right. sorts of things that, you know, you could call a robot. Um, but I think what you're talking about is kind of the humanoid, the human shape sex robot, right? I guess I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm just curious about, I'm just curious about that. Say, uh, yeah, sorry. Go, please, please, please go on. Well, because I, I would say we already have sex robots to some extent mm-hmm. um, in in various forms. Uh, I think that, you know, the, the holy grail for a lot of people in, in, in the sex robot industry is probably creating kind of a humanoid sex robot that's actually compelling and doesn't cost, you know, $14,000 or whatever they cost right now. Uh-huh. Right now, they're basically like they're basically dolls that like have a heartbeat yeah. and can like say some things. Um, yeah. So that's definitely something that uh, exists, but it's not anywhere close yeah. to having sex with a human. And I wonder whether we'll ever get there because it, I think recreating humans is not only boring, but also very difficult. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I guess there's the question of like, what 
it, it seems again like that that goal of replicating a human exactly would be off and what you'd want to do instead is figure out like what is the experience what is the so, like, like the emotional connection that people need to have you know what i mean that people are missing and how could you provide that what is the version of Amazon Astro, <laughs> but for but for sex, <laughs> right? Where you're not trying to do verisimilitude. You're not trying to create a fake person. You're right. trying to create like some sort of like happy, loving emotion of some kind. Uh, maybe maybe the innovation is in like how the how the device speaks to you <laughs> rather than, <laughs> I'm sorry, we don't need to get into it too much. I, I, I feel uncomfortable in the area, but uh, okay. Let, let me ask you about something else. Something that's always fascinated me thinking about robots is the moment at which we become ethically uh, beholden to them. You know, like when we were talking about horses earlier as being sort of a proto-robot, um, we're happy that horses are not hauling us up and down the street anymore generally because sort of we all know like like that sucked for the horses, <laughs> right? <laughs> and we, and, and we, we had like our whole society was built on like misery of horses and also at the same time, misery of people still is built on the misery of people in many ways. But, you know, we're, we've, we're happy to not have unhappy horses all over the place, right? And you, you know, you had people who were going, oh my God, this is bad for the horses. Um, do you feel that, you know, as we create uh, uh, robots that we have more of a, more and more of an emotional connection to, are we one day going to start to object to what we are doing to them? You know, and is that how do, do you think about that question at all? And if so, how? oh, yeah, I think about it all the time. Well, and also because I'm so glad you started with the horses, because usually the whole like robot rights conversation starts in the science fiction realm where in all of our sci-fi robot rights is basically it's the question when are robots sufficiently like us to deserve moral consideration um mm -hmm. but animals aren't necessarily like us and we've been very selective about what animals we've given moral consideration to so yes mm -hmm. in the united states we love horses now we don't want to see horses um mistreated we don't eat horse meat in other countries People still eat horses. Um, yeah. It's, it's very like, you know, I'm sure you wouldn't want to eat your dog. Uh, in other countries, mm -hmm. eating dog meat has been a thing. Like, it's super... Um, the, the animals that we relate to emotionally or culturally are the ones that we want to protect. And so to answer your question, yeah. will we, when we emotionally relate to robots, want to give them moral consideration? I think the answer is definitely. Um, I've already seen in some of the research that I've done and others have done that people genuinely empathize with robots that respond in a lifelike way. They don't want to see them, quote unquote, mistreated. A lot of people have seen these videos uh, by this company, Boston Dynamics, that makes these very biologically inspired robots. And there was yeah. one that they released in 2015 of a robot being kicked and the robot looks kind of like a dog and people got very upset. Um, and yeah. people were like, why does this bother me so much? It's, it's very <laughs> visceral to watch that. And then, of course, yeah. you have stories like, you know, Westworld, where... <sighs> it's it's clear to us that if the if the robots look very lifelike that's it's it's not a comfortable experience for us to watch yeah. them being quote unquote mistreated and people are going to have a problem with that and if they if they don't have a problem with it for their for themselves they're going to have a problem with it for their kids seeing that so yeah. i think we're definitely going to get into the that conversation but the robot rights conversation is going to be about that and it's going to have nothing to do with 
what the robots inherently feel or how intelligent they are, because we're so far away from creating anything approaching human consciousness. And it's not even going to look like our consciousness. And we haven't even given animals rights, really. I mean, we still own them completely and we still eat a lot of them. So I, I, I would, I don't think we're anywhere close to having like a, anything close to human rights for robots, nor (laughs) might we ever, we may not ever get there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because the science fiction version is always the robot saying like, I am a man, you know, I feel like it, there's a famous episode of Star Trek where Data is like on trial for whether or not he's, you know, sentient and has human rights. It's an incredible episode of television. Measure of um, a Man there, is the title. Me- yes. Um, I remember there was an early, I was fascinated by a teenager. There was some piece of uh, like there was like a comic book set in the world of the matrix about like the moment at which robots began to like protest for their rights in like the history of the matrix, you know? And so it's always that, right. It's, it's always the robot saying, I have rights and like marching in the street, but like, and that's always connected to the intellectual question in that Star Trek episode of what is what sorts of things deserve rights? You know, are, are the robots conscious? Do they have an inner life? You know, et cetera, et cetera. But in the real world, like we choose what we have an ethical obligation towards generally, and this is this is my own intuition, but generally based on how much it acts like us, you know, like if a human seems to, if a human talks to us and, you know, uses the same language as us and like it seems to behave the same way, we say, oh, this is a person with another inner life just like mine. And therefore it has rights and I have responsibilities towards this person. And the and the less we see ourselves reflected in another being, the less we are likely to like give it that consideration. Right. People, people who are less like us, we tend to uh, offer them less rights, you know, and animals like the more an animal because my dog looks into my eyes and seems to exhibit human emotions because I'm able to anthropomorphize my dog. I'm like, oh, she has rights. I have to treat her very well. But a crab does not, you know, and so I just intuitively extend less of that to a crab. So my point is, it'll probably my intuition is it'll take more the form of people will just sort of spontaneously start feeling empathy for robots that behave in a certain way. Um, and that'll be what we have to reckon with, not with the robots like marching in the streets, but with, uh, we'll have to reckon with our own emotions about our ethical, like responsibilities towards animals. We'll start just like arising. Does that sound right to you or? That sounds spot on to me. I think that's absolutely how it's going to happen. And that you're right that I think we very much default to anything we relate to as humans. There's also that Mm -hmm. story about the save the whales movement, like people, did not care about whales at all. Like we were still killing and eating whales. And then someone recorded them singing and suddenly everyone's like, oh, the whales can sing. Let's save the whales. Yeah. And that's how the Save the Whale movement took off. Like Greenpeace wow. like, had a field day with that. And so, I, you know, I, I think that that's our default, whether that's a good or a bad default. You know, if you look at human rights, mm-hmm. that hasn't worked out well for us. I also yeah. think that maybe for animals, it hasn't worked out so well. Like, protecting the cute animals and not the other ones. Yeah. I think generally well, humans, cows are cute, by the way, you know, like that's part of, it doesn't always work because cows are cute and very sensitive. And so are pigs. And yet those are the animals that we slaughter in the largest numbers. Totally. Yes. And, and yes. So, so like, yeah. And I think that, you know, some, some cultural like defaults uh, flow into that as well. Maybe some, maybe that's also a product of capitalism. (laughs) We have Mm -hmm. a whole infrastructure to make sure people are, keep eating cows and pigs. Um, But yeah, I I think that it, it, 
I think you used a good word, which is we need to reckon with this. And I think that at the moment that we start having emotions for something that is clearly not alive and we know it doesn't feel anything, maybe that is going to be the time at which we reckon with our default in general and think more deeply about this. I I think it would be good. Yeah. Well, it it makes me want to know, like one of our really deep things we do as humans is anthropomorphizing that we, that we say that things are like us. We do it to animals. We do, you know, the same way, you know, we, we talk to our dogs as though they can speak back to us. We, you know, Coco the gorilla, right? Like, like, oh, animals can talk. Um, then they have our, our same emotions. We also do it to, you know, non-human things is, is the degree to which we immediately go to anthropomorphization. Is that a, is that worrisome? Is that a problem in our relationship with, with robots? Or how do you look at that? I, I would say it depends. Um, it's definitely something that happens. I mean, we're obsessed with ourselves. Like, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. we want to recreate ourselves. We see ourselves in everything. Um, and I don't, th- I don't think that that part is ever going away because robots are this really interesting technology where not only do we love to project ourselves onto anything with like a face or that, that like, like moves in an autonomous way, like robots are also often designed to like, look like something that moves in a way that we understand, um, yeah, just for usability purposes. So I think we're definitely going to anthropomorphize the robots. I used to say, uh, it depends on the use case for the robot because you might you know, if it's a social robot, you want people to anthropomorphize it. If we're using it in health and education to engage people, great. Um, that's a great effect. If it's a factory arm, it kind of depends on whether that's like more or less dangerous for people if they're anthropomorphizing it. Um, but one of the things that I've, um, more recently read about and written about is the use of animals and robots in the military and during wartime. Mm. And, Mm. uh, it's pretty interesting that, there are some bomb disposal robots out there that have been out there for over 10 years now that robots become very, emo- uh, sorry, soldiers become very emotionally attached to and they'll give them names, yeah. medals of honor, they'll have funerals for them. And wow. there's even stories like Peter Singer in his book Wired for War even talks about a soldier like risking his life to to save the the robot that was on the battlefield. And so I used to think this is bad, right? We, we don't want people, you know, it, anthropomorphizing and becoming so emotionally attached to something that's supposed to function as a tool that they're actually being inefficient or risking their lives. That's, that's not. And then I was reading all about how people used to do this with animals in war too. They would become yeah. emotionally attached to the horses. They would try to save the horses in dangerous situations. That, that I mean, we, we, seems bad, we, but we made a whole movie about a horse, like the movie war yes, horse. The, exactly. That's an entire movie about people trying to save the life of this horse over and over again, about a heroic war horse. Everyone loves the horse and everyone is like the whole movie's focused on a horse that doesn't even know it's in a movie. But <laughs> to quote um, John Mulaney. Right. Oh, yeah. Sorry. The thing is that actually these bonds with the animals really helped soldiers in what mm. were very difficult situations. And so in situations where you you need to emotionally bond with something, having a robot there might actually be a net positive. I don't know. Like, yeah. I can't say whether it's a net positive or negative, but there's actually really, uh, it's useful um, in some contexts to have that emotional connection. So, 
Yeah, it, I, I would say it really depends. Um, again, my main concern is that the sex robot will have compelling in-app purchases and not that, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that people are treating these things like they're alive. I don't think that's inherently bad. Yeah, well, that's that's really interesting. Maybe in the future, the movie will be instead of a war horse, it'll be like war drone. It'll be people who are in love with a drone and following the drone from place to place. I mean, <laughs> that actually raises a good question. You mentioned at the beginning uh, autonomous weapons and, and robot weapons. And, and uh, we're, we're nearing the end here, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, like, what are your concerns there? Obviously, many of them. I have many concerns, but I, I, what, what troubles you the most? What troubles me the most is um, the ways in which we project responsibility onto the machines. When we say, uh. oh, the, the algorithm did it, we couldn't possibly have anticipated this. Um, and and that, bother, that, that, that worries me not just in autonomous weapon systems, but in how we're kind of deploying AI generally in the world today. I see a lot of like, oh, the, you know, the algorithm did it. It caused harm. We're so sorry about that, but it's not really our fault. Oh. Look, I work with Netflix, okay? I understand people who give too much weight to the algorithm and use it as an excuse for their human decisions, right? Oh, the algorithm just decided people are not going to watch this. Uh, no no human decided to cancel this. The algorithm did it, right? It's like that's all over the place. It's, it's infected my business. It's infected businesses around the world, I'm sure. So, yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, people distancing themselves from responsibility, I think is, is a problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's a problem specifically with these kind of autonomous technologies. I think they're the animal analogy helps a little bit again, because we've used animals as weapons in war. We've like set pigs on fire and like <laughs> sent them into, into uh, the <laughs> battlefield. That's an autonomous yeah. weapon system right there. Or like, even yeah. just, I just saw an article the other day where like, the Russians are using dolphins to um, to defend some naval base. And wow. so, you know, we have a long history of using animals for all these different things. We have a long history of thinking about who's responsible. Their animals can be owned by organizations. They can be trained by one person and handled by another. So we, we have some history that we can look back on instead of just throwing our hands up and being like, oh, well, the robots should be responsible or the robots did it. Yeah. And the strange thing about the str bringing it back to our point from the beginning about technology, the strange thing about our science fictional lens on AI and robots is that we tend to use it to reduce our own responsibility. We say, well, the robots are coming for our jobs. No matter what we do there, it's super intelligence. It's the singularity. It's, you know, it's a force of nature. The humans had nothing to do with it. When in reality, it's humans all the way down. And we don't do that with animals. We don't say the horses are coming for our jobs. The drug sniffing dogs are coming for our jobs, right? We know that they were trained and put in there by the humans. And in fact, if a, if uh, I think people know that, like, if a, if a canine cop, right, does something it shouldn't do, that it's the people who are at fault. No one blames the dog. Right. Um, they We know that it's a human problem caused by human actions. And we need to retain that same understanding when it comes to robots, if I'm understanding you correctly. Exactly. And that's why I think it's such a powerful analogy, because it changes our conversations in really fundamental ways. And it lets us take some agency back. It's not just about not having responsibility. It's also that we need to have choices in what we're doing with these machines. And we need to re recognize that we do have choices. Incredible. Uh, let me just ask, th that's a wonderful note to end on, but I, I just want to ask for folks when they, uh, folks listening, when they are thinking about 
their own interactions with their own robots when they're watching their Roomba putter around on the floor, right? And which, by the way, Roomba, let's be honest, this is not even a robot. Roombas suck so much. This is, <laughs> I refused, in the words of, in the words of uh, one of my favorite podcasters, Rob Zachney, he once said that, you know, you get a Roomba and you have to become a robot foreman and you have to suddenly like keep track of your Roomba and figure out where the hell like, oh, God, it got stuck in the corner. Like, what? Do you have to babysit a vacuum cleaner? Terrible. But when people are, uh, I'm sorry, I got, I got distracted by a tangent. Um, when people are thinking about their own interactions with this kind of technology, um, what do you, you know, hope they can take away from this conversation to think a little bit differently about it, you know? Well, one thing that we learned in some of our research around empathy for robots is that empathic people are more empathic to robots than less empathic mm. people. And so if you find yourself naming your robot or having feelings for it, um, whether they're negative or positive, I guess, <laughs> because <laughs> you seem to have very strong feelings about, about Roombas, Adam. Um, because <laughs> I hate but, them so much. I don't even have one and I hate them. But either way, like you're projecting um, feelings onto them. And I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think it, says a lot about us as people and our willingness to be relational with others. So, um, yeah, don't feel foolish. Uh, if, if you're doing it, probably means you're empathic. Yeah. And that's the I mean, that is the consciousness that we need to have about it, that it that our feelings about robots are like part of the equation that we need to take into account when we are thinking about them. Um it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, the ideas that you're sharing are so cool. Uh, your book is called The New Breed, right? Um, people can get it. If you folks want to pick it up, you can get it at our special bookshop, factuallypod.com slash books um, or wherever books are sold. Uh, and uh, Kate, where else can people find your work? Um, I'm an active Twitter user. I'm <laughs> Grok, G-R-O-K underscore. Amazing. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Well, thank you once again to Kate Darling for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Once again, if you want to pick up her book, The New Breed, you can head to factuallypod.com slash books. That's factuallypod.com slash books. I want to thank everybody who supports our Patreon at patreon.com slash Adam Conover. If you sign up, you can get bonus podcast episodes. You can join our live nonfiction book club and you get exclusive standup from me. I do not post anywhere else. And I want to thank everyone who supports our Patreon at the $15 a month level. That's Adam Simon, Adrian, Allison Liparato, Alan Liska, Anne Slagle, Antonio LB, Aurelio Jimenez, Beth Brevik, Brandon Sisko, Camus and Lego, Charles Anderson, Chris Staley, Courtney Henderson, David Conover, Drill Bill, M, Hillary Wolken, Jim Shelton, Julia Russell, Kelly Casey, Kelly Lucas, Lacey Tigenhoff, Mark Long, Michael Warnicky, Michelle Glittermum, Miles Gillingsrud, Mom Named Gwen, Mrs. King Koch, Nicholas Morris, Nikki Batelli, Nuyagik Ippoluk, Paul Mauk, Rachel Nieto, Robin Madison, Samantha Schultz, Spencer Campbell, Susan E. Fisher, and Tyler Daraj. If you want to join their ranks, head to patreon.com slash Adam Conover. Of course, I also want to thank our producer, Sam Roudman, our engineer, Ryan Connor, Andrew WK, for our theme song, the fine folks at Falcon Northwest, for building me the incredible custom gaming PC. I'm recording this very episode for you on. You can find me online at adamconover.net, where you can find, once again, all my tour dates. 
Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on Factual. That was a HeadGum Podcast.